0: For more on this, we're joined by epidemiologist Dr. Machef Boney, professor of biology, Pennsylvania State University. I'll link to his writings over at our website. Welcome, professor. Thank you for coming back.
1: David, thank you very much for having
0: me on again. Thank you. I know this is uh, your busy season, as they say in the schmata business.
1: We've never been as busy as we are
0: now. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to just set the ground rules here i am gonna play the the part of mayor larry vaughn from jaws who doesn't want to close the beaches i am the eternal optimist i believe that america as flawed deeply flawed as it is happens to be a lucky country for some not everybody i think sometimes we get lucky i have to be optimistic and so please take this in the spirit to which it's intended. And that is uh, I want to push back on some of the hysteria because I'm having mild panic attacks and I'm trying to get my uh, bearings here. And so are my listeners. So uh, let me start off with this. Bloomberg, reliable news source. This is the headline. of those who died from the virus had other illnesses. More than 99% of Italy's coronavirus fatalities were people who suffered from previous medical conditions, according to a new study. So we're hearing a lot about Italy. You were on the show last week. We talked about comorbidity. Talk to me again about comorbidity and what this article in Bloomberg tells you, because isn't it conceivable that old people have leukemia, they contract the coronavirus, and the the coronavirus accelerates the death. But this person, I'm not trying to be insensitive, I'm just trying to figure out how much of my hair to pull out here it is conceivable that you have the coronavirus, you're told you have the coronavirus, and you have a heart attack and die. Yes, the coronavirus contributed to your death, but what did you die from? The coronavirus or a heart attack? What are the people in Italy dying from? Are they dying from the coronavirus? Or were they old, sick, and this was inevitable. And I'm sorry for this question.
1: So we did talk about some of this last week about comorbidities. And let's talk about a few different perspectives that we can take on it. Okay. First, if, um, if somebody uh, dies as a result of a coronavirus infection, but they had a comorbidity like uh, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, it's still true that Uh, they would not have died that week had it not been for their coronavirus infection. So in these cases, I think it's fair uh, to list coronavirus as a cause of death for these individuals. Okay. Now, you're right uh, in saying that individuals with comorbidities are more predisposed to dying, to progressing to something very severe and critical, not only with a coronavirus infection, but for infections with many infectious diseases. So influenza virus infection, a malaria infection if you live in the developing world, um, many types of infections interact with comorbidities to lower your chances of survival and essentially to increase the likelihood that you'll progress to something for which you need hospitalization or critical care. So this is true, this is all true. Okay. I don't think it means that we should view these groups of individuals any differently. Um it is true that when we look at the overall death rate, we should account for comorbidities because the overall death rate is different for a 40-year-old, depending whether they do or don't have diabetes, or depending on whether they are a smoker or not. And it's also true for a 70-year-old and an 80-year-old. So it is good to talk about it in categories, uh, but broadly speaking... Uh, we should count these individuals in sort of our overall tally of the the risk that this virus poses to all of us.
0: Okay. And, and
1: thank you for this.
0: And uh, well, so when you see a study like this, I want to learn how to parse the numbers. Uh, you know, I lived in San Francisco in 1982 at the height of the outbreak of AIDS. Actually, it wasn't the height. They were calling it Uh, I think it was grid, uh, gay immunity, grid, gay-related immune deficiency. First they called it gay plague, then they call it gay-related immune deficiency. Within a year or two, they started calling it AIDS. And we were told a lot of things back in San Francisco in 1982 that AIDS was airborne, that you could get it from kissing, from shaking hands, and then uh, there's no question that it's a disgrace. It is a disgrace, the way Reagan responded to the, uh, the, the outbreak. However, we were told uh, that, that it could be passed through types of sex that really... It wasn't true. There were specific types of sex that it's passed by, and uh, so there was a lot of misinformation, and a lot of that misinformation was to scare us into funding research for AIDS, which we should have been doing, absolutely. But there was a lot of information that seeped out that was inaccurate, and uh, there are some people who thought that we were being scared into funding research for AIDS. And, Again, we, we certainly dropped the ball on AIDS, and we're certainly dropping the ball on the coronavirus, but what is true, what isn't, how do we parse the numbers? That's all I'm asking, is like, how terrified should we be? China is the tale of the tape. Three months ago, China gets its first outbreak of the coronavirus. On Wednesday of this week, China reported no new cases of home transmission. In other words, all new cases from China are coming from people returning from overseas travel. We're getting reports that Wuhan is slowly coming back to life. The restaurants are open. Does this give you optimism? Before we compare China's response to this crisis with America's response, we'll get to that. But is there a built-in crest to a virus such as this? Or or do, do we have to depend entirely on science to stop its spread?
1: David, we've got a couple questions here. We've got um, the question of overreacting, underreacting, and misinformation during right. epidemics, and then we've got the question of the epidemic cresting or not. Which one of these do you want to cover first? Uh, well, let's... Uh,
0: okay, overreacting.
1: So your analogy to the 1981-1982 outbreak of HIV and AIDS in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York is a very good one. And I was not a scientist in 1981 or 1982, uh, but I've read about this enough to know that there was an underreaction by the general uh, community of people in the United States who should have been worrying about this new virus that had just uh, arrived in the U.S. Absolutely. And, And some of the overreactions that people will label overreactions right now were warranted and in an emergency like this it's much better to 10 percent overreact it's much better to move with speed and get something done and to later be called out on your overreaction than to sit back and do nothing so right. this is similar between the 1981-82 outbreak of hiv in the u.s and what's happening right now with coronavirus
0: uh, just so i'm the- clear here I- i'm gonna interrupt if you don't mind i Again, I think Reagan should have been locked up for his slow response. I saw what happened. I lived in the Castro district. I saw what happened. Uh, It's a disgrace the way this. uh, That being said, there was a lot of misinformation that was spread. Uh, Is that fair to say that we that a lot of people said things that weren't true to wake the American people up.
1: That's right. The the federal government's response in 1981, 82 and going all the way up to 85, 86 when Reagan wouldn't address the issue was a disgrace. And by the time Reagan addressed it, 25,000 individuals had died of AIDS. Mm. However, in the NIH, in the National Institutes of Health in the US, the National Cancer Institute on their own began doing research on HIV and AIDS. They would later discover that it was caused by a virus called the HIV virus. They began doing this research anyway. They didn't need direction and they didn't want input from politicians. They knew that it was important. And these lifelong, dedicated public health officials began doing the research that was necessary to develop a test, to develop a test to see if you were protected at all. Eventually, to start looking at a vaccine, which failed, But also this research led to the discovery of drugs by the late 1980s, which is now the only way that we manage HIV cases.
0: And we should mention that there are three people on this planet who have been reportedly cured of AIDS. So there is some.
1: That's that's right. I thought it was two. But if you say it's three, I believe you. This is we don't yet fully know why, but this has happened uh, a, a small number of times.
0: Cured. Also N- not of... naturally, but 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 cured through science.
1: That's right. As far as I know, yes. I'll just tell your listeners that I'm I'm not an expert on these two or okay. two cases.
0: All right. So as far as misin- yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: As far as misinformation goes, we do have better information in 2020 than we did in 1981, and it was hard for people to get good information out of the National Cancer Institute in 1981. Because who would have thought, what journalist in some part of America would have thought to call the National Cancer Institute and ask them how their research was going and how concerned they were about the incipient HIV epidemic? Today, it's different. Today, uh, you still have to sort of judge whether you trust a particular news outlet or not. But you can connect yourself to epidemiologists who are interviewed by these news outlets who uh, express their own opinions on Twitter And if you search some of the bigger universities in the U.S., I'm at Penn State University. And if you look at uh, Harvard, Yale, Hopkins, University of Toronto, and a handful of others, there are people that are posting, tweeting, and uh, giving their most up-to-date analyses on a daily or weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So we do have access to better information if people know who to follow on these different uh, social networks uh, where, where these results are being posted. Okay, and maybe too much information. There may be too much. That's right. It may be too much information. I appreciate that for the average person, it's not easy uh, to know who to trust in this type of environment. I'll give your listeners two other universities in the UK, Imperial College London and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And if you go to any of these institutions and go to their Twitter accounts, you'll find the investigators and the epidemiologists who are giving you the best opinions and the best analyses to date. Okay, and that's
0: why I'm having you on the show. And again, I'm playing the part of Larry Vaughn, the mayor in Jaws, who wants to keep the, the, uh, the beach open. Uh, is there a built-in crest to a virus like this?
1: Yes, epidemics have built-in crests. So an epidemic uh, begins by infecting a small number of people and it uh, begins in an exponential growth phase. So you'll see three cases one week, nine the next week, and then all of a sudden it's 27 and 100 and 500 before you know it. That initial phase is very fast, Mm -hmm. but it does not grow exponentially forever. That growth begins to slow down when the virus begins to run out of susceptible individuals because the virus is infecting people, and as a result of these infections, individuals become immune, and normally they cannot become infected again. So these crests, or these peaks of epidemics, in in this situation, an epidemic like this would peak after two or three months, and then the major epidemic wave would begin to wane and recede. Now, the downside of just waiting for this crest to arrive is that during this time, a lot of people will get infected, and that means that a lot of people will die. And because the case fatality rate is sort of in this 0.5% to 1% range, and I'm sorry, I should tell your listeners that that's the infection fatality rates, not the case fatality rates, but because the infection fatality rate is in the 0.5% to 1% range, 1% 1% of 100 million people is a million people, and that is a lot of potential deaths for a society to suffer. Right, right. Uh,
0: so the difference between those two rates is one is case rate thats a, that we know of, and then just the infection rate among the general population.
1: We're not that's everybody's... exactly right. Okay. A, a, a case is somebody who is detected, uh, and an infection is somebody who just gets infected, and then they may or may not be detected by the health system. I see.
0: And we do need, unfortunately, people contracting the virus in order to build up antibodies. Is that correct?
1: That's right. I don't know if I would use the verb need, because this is a really hard process for a population to go through. Yeah. We are We are already here. The epidemic has infected 10,000 Americans. That's confirmed number of infections, so yeah. there's probably 20, 30, 40,000 others that have not been confirmed. And slowly, these we are going to build up the number of immune individuals, but this is not an ideal way to cope with this epidemic. A much better way, as we talked to your listeners last time, a much better way is to flatten the curve and to make this epidemic as slow and as mild as possible so that many of us or most of us get it, but in a way that doesn't stress the health system, doesn't cause additional deaths. And at the end of the day, in a way, so we infect or have infected as few people as possible. And so the antibodies,
0: it is conceivable that a healthy person gets the virus, the antibodies kick in and beat the virus. Is that fair to say? Is that how it works? You that be- is accurate and and you yep. and you don't show signs of the virus you you
1: you well that 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 depends there's a spectrum so 99% of people will survive and these people some of them will have a very mild infection with a little bit of a dry cough some people will have a dry cough and a fever some people may be bedridden for 3 days and some people may have no symptoms at all and but it- 99%
0: And the antibodies, do we take those antibodies from the people who beat the virus and use those antibodies to make the vaccine,
1: or how does that work? Vaccination works a a little bit differently. When you develop a vaccine, you, you have to isolate the virus. Viruses are very, very small things. And you have to take some of the proteins off of the surface of the virus. These are the proteins that our immune system recognizes. And essentially, you have to put those proteins into some type of injectable formulation that you can inject into somebody's arm. What happens is you inject this vaccine into somebody's arm. It's got little bits of virus protein in it, or sometimes it even has the whole virus in it, but it's an inactivated version. And then your immune system is essentially fooled into reacting to this uh, protein or this dead virus and creating antibodies. So this is the the magic of vaccination. This is a a technology that has saved tens of millions of lives, maybe hundreds of millions of lives over the last hundred years. Just
0: a slight detour. I read 20 years ago that we learned how to inoculate against smallpox from the slaves that were brought over from Africa. Did you ever hear anything about that that they that that they would take the sores and and remove the pus and then give it to other slaves and it was observed and then people said this is how we can kill smallpox have you ever heard of that
1: i I have heard this i'll I'll tell you what I know about the the most commonly discussed story of how smallpox vaccination was developed and it it was in England and it was um, a physician who was doing exactly what you just described, uh, taking the pus um, from the pustules of smallpox patients and uh, essentially making an incision in the arm of a healthy person, putting that pus inside their blood and then waiting and hoping that that person would later be immune to smallpox. Mm. So this was done uh, on uh, British people, not on slaves It was done both with cowpox and with smallpox. And it was done with different varieties of smallpox. So the clinicians could distinguish the more virulent and the less virulent types of smallpox to see which ones would be better candidates at trying to uh, inoculate people. I've heard about the slave story, but I can't give you uh, any other descriptions of it.
0: Right. this isn't – what I've read is that the the slaves brought the cure – with them that they knew to do this they had learned that from their their traditions in africa that's what i had read but let's move on that's for another show i read that epidemiologists need the very least 14 consecutive days without any new infections uh, and and once you get 14 consecutive days without any infections the the outbreak can be reclassified as either contained or over uh, why 14 days? And if China goes 14 days without any new infections, let's hope that this is what the, the trend is. What does that mean? Are, will there be second waves in China of the infection? What, what? Why 14 days? And then what could we expect once it's called contained?
1: Here's where the 14-day number comes from. You have a 95% chance of developing symptoms within the first 14 days of infection. So if you touch a doorknob on a Monday, then you and then you touch your face, uh, there's a 95% chance that within the next 14 days to the following Monday and to the Monday after that, that you'll develop symptoms at that point. And after that, it's now unlikely that you'll develop symptoms. So this is why 14 days is used as the quarantine period, and it's also used as this... Um, um, safety period for a community. So if a community hasn't seen new cases in 14 days, that's pretty good news. Maybe mm-hmm. transmission has stopped completely. If that community is small, if it's a, a town of several thousand people and you can be fairly sure that you've tested almost everybody and you've looked at everybody that's had symptoms, then this is a good sign that transmission has stopped. But if you're looking at Hubei province or the city of Wuhan, places that have, you know, 10 million people or 60 million people, you are still at risk of having a lot of undetected cases. So you may have had no cases in the last 14 days, but you don't know, as you mentioned before, if there are some (laughs) asymptomatic people or some mildly symptomatic people that have been circulating in the population and perhaps spreading the virus.
0: What is this second wave? We read about the flu the spanish flu that there was a, a second wave to it
1: why is there a second wave this is a very important conversation so let's spend a little bit of time okay. on this second wave and what it is and whether it's coming and, and how in china they have managed to suppress the epidemic so that um it's not creating new infections um In the spring of 1918, we had a situation where we had a minor outbreak of Spanish flu, and then the Spanish flu was suppressed in the summer of 1918, and we didn't seem to have a lot of new infections. But in both of these situations, the virus is still there, and people are still susceptible. You have a situation where maybe 1% or 2% of the population is immune because they've had it, but that's not nearly enough immunity in the population to prevent the virus from spreading again. So what'll happen in these situations is the virus will come back again when conditions are favorable. And what are favorable conditions? Well, for influenza, favorable conditions are uh, winter and uh, low humidity. For this new coronavirus, favorable conditions might be when schools reopen or when a society decides to relax its social distancing measures. And now the virus will be primed and ready to reignite a second epidemic wave that we would then have to be ready for and we would have to respond to. And hopefully by then there's a vaccine. Hopefully by then there is either a vaccine or improved hospital capacity or improved testing capacity or all of them if we're lucky and we really manage to get our act together. So what makes this coronavirus
0: so lethal? Is it because it's so contagious It's easier to catch than, say, other viruses, or is it because it's so dangerous once
1: you have it? I'm not sure we know why it's deadly. And for your listeners, there's two characteristics of a virus that are important to understand. One is how contagious is it, and the other is how deadly is it? And in principle, these two things can be totally independent. You can have viruses that are not contagious and not deadly. You can have viruses that are both very contagious and very deadly, and some that are deadly but not contagious, and contagious but not deadly. So you can have sort of any combination of these two things. And this virus appears to be uh, contagious enough, let's say, or we could just simply say that it's very contagious. It's clearly spread all over the world. The proof is in the pudding. It's infected 220,000 people so far. Mm -hmm. And Uh, we do know how deadly it is because we've been able to measure the infection fatality ratio at about 1% and the case fatality ratio at about 3%. But do we know why? Well, we know that it leads to pneumonia and we know that pneumonia is very dangerous and it can lead to death, but anything more specific, I'm not sure if we know why. Right, right. And
0: again, it's tending to be a respiratory illness It manifests itself in the lungs. Is that what we're concluding
1: that's right it replicates in cells that you have in your lungs in your throat and i think in your nose i don't know how successful the virus is at uh being sneezed out but i, I wouldn't be surprised but yeah the main replication is in your lungs both in your upper respiratory tract and then and also deeper in your lung which is called the lower respiratory tract all right
0: uh, a lot of younger people are referring to the virus as boomer removal uh and I, I want to learn how to parse numbers here you're an epidemiologist and what i'm trying to teach myself and the listeners is how to read the news properly so young people are calling it boomer removal uh kind of funny older people preferred biden younger people prefer bernie younger i hear younger people saying things like uh you know, the boomers left us broke in debt, no jobs, no health care an unwillingness to address climate change. So let's pay a visit to grandma, make sure she can't vote in November. Uh, so let's look at these numbers. The CDC said this week, 38 percent of Americans with the virus who had to be hospitalized were between the ages of 20 to 54. of Americans... I want to learn how to parse statistics and numbers here. 38% of Americans with the virus who had to be hospitalized were between the ages of 20 to 54. 20% of the hospitalized patients were between the ages of 20 and 44. 12% of the intensive care patients were between the ages of 20 and 44. Uh, so, that there are two ways to read this as I see it, doctor. One is young people think they're immune to this, but 38% of Americans with the virus who had to be hospitalized were between the ages of 20 to 54. That's one way to look at it. But 12% Of intensive care patients are between the ages of 20 and 44. Could an argument be made if you're a boomer? Hey, only 12% of the ICU patients are between the ages of 20 and 44. Sure, you get hospitalized, but uh, you don't end up in the ICU. Is that one way to read this and and, and for you to conclude, yeah, the young people aren't as susceptible to the virus as older people are.
1: So let's spend a little bit of time on these age-specific risks. And this CDC report that you're referring to, this is from yesterday. This is a March 18th report from the CDC on the first group of hospitalizations in the U.S. Yeah. First, I just want to say, again, for your listeners, I think uh, the phrase boomer removal is a really ugly term. As an epidemiologist, I would never use this. Yes. And... As somebody who works in public health, we try to improve the lives and the health of populations and individuals as best we can. Yes. I completely understand the some of the grievances that uh, millennials and even my generation have towards the boomer generation, but these are separate issues that can, can be discussed after this epidemic is over. Yep. I have nephews who have OK Boomer t-shirts, and yep. uh, they think it's funny, but this is for a later time. We yes. can retake yes this discussion in a year yes so the age specific risks um this cdc report was a little surprising as you said the 20 to 44 the 45 to 54 age groups have hospitalization rates that were higher than i expected so uh something like uh 20 to 30 percent for 45 to 54 that's your risk of uh of being hospitalized. It's in the 15 to 20% range for 20 to 44s. And if these numbers hold up, if um, we get other data supporting that it, these really are the hospitalization rates, then the summary is that this virus really is dangerous to younger people and they shouldn't be going out to bars. They shouldn't be congregating in large groups. They are putting themselves at risk and they're putting their parents and their grandparents at risk if they contract something and then go spend time with them. If you look in the CDC report, the last thing they have is the death rate or the case fatality. And the case fatality in this report is similar uh, to case fatality rates that have been computed for other countries. So the case fatalities are still in the 10 to 20 percent range for the over 70, uh, over 75 age group. They are in the two to five percent range for the over 65 age group. And they're quite low. The case fatality rates are quite low for the individuals in their 20s and 30s. Okay. And let's make sure we understand what a case fatality rate is. The case fatality rate is the probability that you will die if you get the disease and then become symptomatic or sufficiently symptomatic that you would want to visit a health system. Okay. So it's like the top... 60% or the top 50% of severe infections.
0: Right. Again, this is because we lack critical thinking in America and don't know how to parse data. That doesn't mean that 2.5% of people over the age of 65 are going to die from the virus, or 2.5% of people over the age of 65 who get the virus are going to die. 2.5% who end up as a case inside a hospital or being monitored by a doctor, that is a case, that's the case fatality
1: rate, correct? That's right. A case is anybody who is symptomatic enough to go to a doctor to seek care. You don't have to be hospitalized or anything like that. You just have to feel bad enough that you're going to report to a health system. That makes you a case.
0: Suppose you're over the age of 65 and you test positive for the coronavirus, but you're showing no symptoms. Are you considered a case?
1: Yes, you are considered a case. If you test positive for the coronavirus and you're 65 and you're showing no symptoms, you should call your doctor because it's entirely possible that in the next two or three days you will progress to more severe symptoms. And it's better to get that care early it's n- not a good idea to go into the hospital late when your symptoms are already severe. Right,
0: I'm just learning how to parse numbers here. So, if sure. you're if you're uh if you're 20 years old and you test for the virus and you test positive, but you're showing no symptoms, 14 days pass and you had it, are you considered a case
1: even if you tested positive but you're fine? Oh, I I would say no in that case. If you had no symptoms and you were tested, that means that you volunteered to be tested even though you had no symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that person is not a case. That person is someone who uh, is infected with the virus asymptomatically. And if you're 20 and you have no symptoms and you get tested as positive, stay home. And as long as you don't have symptoms, stay home, get lots of sleep. Right. Uh, drink lots of fluids and you'll recover.
0: Okay. We've been talking with epidemiologist Dr. Maciek F. Boney, professor of biology at Pennsylvania State University. I will link to his writings over at our website. Uh, Deborah Bricks, Burks, Dr. Deborah Birx, she's one of Donald Trump's top coronavirus advisors. You see her on the stage with him during the press conferences. She says, as testing becomes more widespread, and we (laughs) hope it becomes more widespread, we should expect the numbers to spike, kind of like uh, a national election. You know, uh, California and Texas haven't voted yet. Once we count those votes, there'll be a spike in numbers. Uh, I want to ask you, you're an epidemiologist, uh, how do you know when the curve has flattened? You know, if everybody's testing, then we're going to see horrible numbers. I mean, I've been told this weekend is crucial that it, that we should see people showing up in emergency rooms right about now. Uh, how do you read the numbers? How do you know when when the curve has finally flattened in elections, they rely on exit polls, samplings, and then they're able to project how the rest of America voted. We're going to be inundated as Americans. You know, we're going to go to the CDC and see this enormous spike, but that's because of the, the test numbers are coming in. The curve may be very difficult. Yeah. The curve may be flattening,
1: even though it's spiking. It's it's very difficult, as you pointed out, for two reasons. One, we are going to have an increase in testing, we're all assuming, over the coming months, and then it's difficult to compare the current month to the previous month when individuals weren't tested. And two, a lot of the uh, the behavior, the, the trajectory of the epidemic, depends on our own behavior. So if we relax and start going to bars again, then the epidemic will begin to spike again. And if we all stay home, the curve will flatten. And when the curve is flat or flattening, it's a little difficult to detect the peak. So in general, in this situation, I'm not sure when we'll be able to say if we are at peak coronavirus and if we may be declining but there's going to be another method in a few months that we'll be able to use to make this assessment. And um, let's spend a minute telling your listeners what this is going to be. When we have a good test to measure antibodies in people, and let's say that by June we have something developed and a study in place where we can sample a lot of people efficiently, we'll be able to go out to the general population, ask for some small blood draws from thousands of people, And we'll be able to say that 20 percent of the population has antibodies, 5 percent of the population has antibodies, 50 percent has antibodies. If we can do that, then we'll really know if we're past the peak and if the epidemic is going to start receding and waning.
0: In terms of samplings, we need to keep an eye on emergency rooms. That would tell us how bad this pandemic is. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yes, that's right. So both uh, emergency room visits and admissions to the intensive care units of hospitals, these have already begun to spike. And these are some of the early signals that we have to be looking for, because they do tell us there are a lot of cases. And they also tell us that the ICUs, for example, are approaching capacity and we need to do something quickly. The ICUs are approaching capacity. They are, and I haven't followed all of them. I'm in touch with the uh, Rhode Island's Department of Health to see what their capacity and testing situation is. Um, they are not yet at capacity or in a critical situation but i but I think in Washington and New York, there are places that are approaching this capacity.
0: okay. Let's end on an upbeat note. Thank you f- so much for doing this i i I cannot thank you enough and again I was playing the part of Mayor Larry Vaughn from Jaws uh you know don't panic you know that kind of stuff uh sure. I, I you know I just want to uh, uh you know I always play on this show the exchange between Mission Control and Apollo 13 that's my mm-hmm. mantra I, I listen to the the court the, the conversations between James Lovell I think it was Gene Kranz uh and they just remained calm. I mean, the, the Apollo 13 was losing oxygen and these guys were going to die. And I I always play Gene. I think it's Gene Kranz. I'm embarrassed to say that. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, let's remain calm here. Don't guess. And that's always the best way to uh, live your life. The Civil War. Horrible. No question. But. From the Civil War, a new generation of surgeons emerged and the world was better off. Uh, What is the positive from this pandemic? What 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 are epidemiologists going to get from this to make this world better and safer?
1: Well, the positive may be that in 2021 or 2022, we can persuade Congress to create uh, a nationally functioning public health system that can respond to an emergency. I mean, this may be a positive. Everybody will see that it's not uh, a waste of money, that it's not a hypothetical. It's something that's already happened, and it could certainly happen again. That's one positive. I mean, I I hate to be the pessimist on your show, David, but before we get to that positive, there's going to be pain and suffering, and people are going to die. Um, The Apollo 13 analogy is a really good one. Remain calm because you have to remain calm to manage an emergency. But those people managing the crisis on Apollo 13, they knew that it was a crisis. So we all have to acknowledge that this is a crisis for the next 12 months. We have to remain calm, manage it as best we can. And then by next summer or the following summer, I hope we can get to some of these positives. Uh, a nationalized public health system or health system or both, something where every American, every state, every city, every town can get rapid, immediate access to care in an emergency like this one.
0: Any governors impressing you?
1: Well, Jay Inslee in Washington um, has impressed me. I haven't followed everything in Washington state for the last week or two, but in the initial uh, spike of cases, he understood how serious it was, and he, I believe, declared an emergency earlier than uh, the federal government and helped the state of Washington get uh, testing rolled out, get contact tracing done, which is identifying individuals that are at risk. So I was very impressed with his response. And then in California, Gavin Newsom, uh, a week or more ago, uh, asked that hotels be made available for the, the coming surge of patients, and I think that was Uh, Also a very good idea. Okay.
0: Last question. What is the most important thing you would like to tell my listeners?
1: I am very sorry to be repetitive, but flatten the curve. This is a real thing. This is something that we can do and we have control over. Just by minimizing your contacts, not going to large dinner parties, skipping spring break, not going to bars... You will remove yourself as a link in the transmission chain of this infection. You'll slow down the epidemic. Fewer people will get infected and fewer people will die.
0: And there'll be time to discuss conspiracy theories in a year. Now is exactly in a
1: in a year. We'll worry about conspiracies, the economy and everything else. All that stuff we're going to get back, all the economic productivity that we've lost this year. We're going to get back in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. But our loved ones that pass away, we're not going to get them back. Right. We can talk about the the Davos and the Trilateral Commission and
0: all that stuff. That's uh, going to be dessert. But first, let's flatten the curve. We have been talking with epidemiologist Dr. Machef Boney, professor of biology, Pennsylvania State University. I'll link to his writings over at my website.
1: How do people follow you on Twitter? So it's at Machek Boney. M a c i e k b o n i and I think last time you tweeted out my Twitter handle along with your podcast. Yes, yes, and I'll do that again.
0: Thank you, Doctor. Can you stand the line for one quick second?
1: Yes, thank you very much for having me on, oh, David.
0: Thank it's. Believe me, the, thank you. I was going to say the pleasure's mine, but it, to be honest, have, this hasn't been a pleasure. But yeah.
1: <laughs> David, do you have a? Do you have a, Are we off? Uh, oh, hang on. Are yeah. we off?
0: Let, let me let me stop yeah. one second. Hang on for one second.